I don't know what you think about Acts chapter 6, but fundamentally, it's a strategic moment in the life of the church. There's something is being initiated here that has far-reaching consequences. And they're, not to push the point too far, but it could be that as a result of the challenges and the changes that are being faced from now on in the Acts of the Apostles, we are here. Because what's beginning is that the Christian faith is being rescued from being a sect of Judaism into becoming a universal gospel or good news that applies to every person on the face of the earth. You see, the quarrel here is between people, a group that are known as the Hebraic Jews and the Grecian Jews. Perhaps I need to just sketch in a little bit of the background here. I've said at the top of your notes that there were problems inside the church. There was a quarrel. And secondly, there was poverty outside the church. And that was physical, material poverty. What happened in Judaism, they had a, a collection every Friday on the day before the Sabbath, which was Saturday. They had a collection every Friday when they, they went round the marketplaces and also went to private houses and they collected money and stuff, goods. It was called the kupach. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but you don't know either, so it doesn't make any difference. And they did that every Friday. It, kupach means a basket. In, uh, that's the translation from the Hebrew word. Also, on a daily basis, they had a thing called the tamhui, which is translated as a tray. And uh, they, they took gifts in that tamhui. See, the Jewish nation was and still is a very hospitable, concerned group of people. And their concern was for the disadvantaged and the voiceless. And so, as a result of these uh, offerings that were given, they were able to share with those who were very vulnerable and exposed. And there was no way that they, there were no social services, there were they were, they were actually very exposed. And so they distributed these gifts among them. And that's what chapter 6 of Acts is all about. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews, those who had moved out of the, the immediate environment uh, of the Hebraic Jews, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. See, part of the difficulty was that Jesus was a Jew. The apostles were Jews. The church until this point, by and large, was Jewish. Those who wrote the Bible, the authors of the Bible, were all Jews, apart from one. The place where God became incarnate was Israel. And so there was a focus there on uh, the is Israelis. And uh, it, it was in rabbinic teaching 
that uh, if a Jewish, if a, a Gentile woman was giving birth to a child, that child was not to be cared for. The Jews had come to the conclusion that God had very little use for those of other nations. Very difficult for us to understand that. But then, of course, we too have our prejudices that can grip us and make us totally irrational. And so what's happening here is actually a sort of little microcosm in, in the, the local church situation of a far bigger issue. And that's always the situation I've discovered over the years. That very often when there's trouble in the church, that is actually not the issue. There's something that's much deeper, much more fundamental, much more strategic, much more significant, much more disturbing than the actual presenting symptom. But something is happening here in Acts chapter 6 that is deeply significant. Begins in 6. Chapter 7 is about, is about this man uh, called Stephen, who, who actually was, uh, was, was killed for saying that God's love was for all people. In, in Acts chapter 8, as you go on through the Acts of the Apostles, the risen Jesus appears to that great apostle, Paul, on the Damascus Road. He was then Saul of Tarsus and tells him that he is to be the apostle to the Gentiles. That's in Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 10. You get Peter, who is uh, uh, having a sleep on the top of the roof, and he, he sees a vision. You, you would know this story, and he's basically saying, God, you can't do that. That's not how I was brought up. That's not the way that I think. These are, this is a, an infringement of my convictions. As a, it's a fascinating passage, Acts chapter 10. And, uh, and so it goes on. And in the middle of all of that, the Spirit of God comes down on the Samaritans. And the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. And so the, this Acts chapter 6 is deeply revolutionary. There is something beginning in this little story that has deep and intrusive and disturbing and far-reaching consequences. So I didn't choose to preach or to unpack this chapter this morning. I, I understand that this is where you've got to. And that's a good way to study Scripture. That we don't go to pieces that are suitable for us or acceptable to us, but we take Scripture as it begins to unfold its truth to us. See, I've come to the conclusion that the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to make us like the Son of God. And that's what Christianity is about. It's about making us like Jesus. And so as you continue through this magnificent book. We actually, back in our church, back at my base, we are going through the Acts of the Apostles. We just reached number 45. Uh, there, there's just so much material that's stuffed into this unfolding historical record of the, the early church, the church in its golden age, when in fact... It moved from the religious capital of the world, Jerusalem, 
to the political capital of the world, Rome, in one, one generation. It is an, it's a, it's a, a, a romantic book. It's a, a, an amazing book, just full of, of content. And so I, I did want to look at the text with you this morning. And uh, I put down on your notes that uh, God was looking for three characteristics in church members. It so happens that they're male, that's why I've said he, but uh, that's not some kind of sexist comment. I'm I'm just trying to be uh, honorable to Scripture here. So the twelve gathered, verse 2, all the disciples together. They said, it wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Here is an issue. We need to sort it, folks. But actually, we need to be careful that we are not distracted from our calling in God. That's where brothers choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of these four things. And so I I wanted simply to look at that. They're looking for people in the church You see, I think this is normal. This is normality we're speaking about here. I hope it's all right for me to say this to you. But we have lived, I'm talking about myself as well, we have lived for such a long time in the abnormal. We call it normal. And when we touch God's normal, we call it abnormal. We're really funny people. We've lived for such a long time in the abnormal. We call it normal. And when we touch God's normal, we call it abnormal. This is God's normal. And somehow or other it can seem remote, disconnected from from us. And uh, so the first thing that uh, they have to look for among their membership, uh, are people who are filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, this isn't charismatic. This isn't Pentecostal. This is biblical. That's what it says in Scripture. One of my heroes, a man called A.W. Tozer, and Dr. Tozer says, Satan has opposed the doctrine of the Spirit-filled life about as bitterly as any doctrine there is. He has confused it, the devil's confused it, opposed it, surrounded it with false notions and fears. He has blocked every effort of the church of Christ to receive from the Father the divine and blood-bought patrimony. The church has tragically neglected this great liberating truth that, that, listen, that there is now for the child of God a full and wonderful and completely satisfying anointing with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit, listen, the Spirit-filled life is not a special deluxe edition of Christianity. It's part and parcel of the total plan of God for his people. I spent six years as an undergraduate at university. 
I went to two theological colleges. One of them was my denominational college, the Baptist College in Scotland. Nobody ever taught me that I needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I was ordained in 1956. I was 12 years in the ministry. I was four years in my first pastorate. And then I went just north of Edinburgh to a place called Dunfermline. And I was there for eight years. In the final year of the ministry there, I was leading a, a Bible study and a prayer meeting on a Wednesday. We always had a Bible study and prayer meeting on a Wednesday night. And it was the holiday, it was July, it was the holiday fortnight in Dunfermline. And uh, in those days, vast number of folks had left our community and gone on holiday. And so we moved from the large hall downstairs to a smaller hall upstairs for our prayer and Bible study meeting. Beautiful summary. And I was sitting having shared some teaching on Ephesians, Paul's letter to Ephesians. And I had looked with, the, with those who were there at Ephesians chapter 3, and there was great freedom. I felt great freedom in unpacking Scripture. And I was sitting there very much in contact with all that was going on. And as I sat there, I can only say to you that Jesus came to me. I find it difficult to explain that to you, but I know it's true. And he baptized me in the Holy Spirit. What was it like, Jim? Well, there was a sense of gratitude rose up in my spirit. There was a sense of wonder at what God had done for me in Christ. In fact, I could feel tears coming to my eyes. Now I'm a Scotsman, and Scotsmen don't cry. What a lie that is, but you know, that's how I was brought up. And I'm struggling with this. There was a sense of warmth. There was a sense of light. There was a sense of wonder. There was a sense of joy that was rising up within me. And I'm still in very much contact with all that's going on. The meeting was supposed to finish at 9 o'clock, and it did. And the congregation went home. And I went to my room. They called it the vestry. And I did something which I'd never done before. I knelt down. I didn't kneel, you see. Being brought up in the west of Scotland, I thought that's what Catholics did. And I was a Baptist. I'm not a Catholic, so I didn't kneel. I crouched. That's how I prayed. But instinctively, I, I knelt. And I poured out my heart in what I can only describe as my first experience of pure worship. I wasn't confessing my sin. I wasn't asking God for anything. I wasn't interceding for people. I was simply pouring out my heart in gratitude and wonder and worship. Is, is it all right to tell you this? I, I want to connect Scripture with reality. I just was so moved, if I may say so wrong, by the honesty and the bravery of your testimony this morning. That's reality, you see. See, it seems to me that theology without experience is dead. 
Actually, experience without theology is dangerous. But that's, these are the two sides of the coin. But back to where I was. I've no idea how long I remained on my knees, pouring out my heart to God. But when eventually I walked home, because in July in Scotland the nights are long, or the days are long, the nights are short. And I walked down through the public park. I've even got goosebumps now. It's all these years ago. As I recall that. See, I was ignorant. We're now in 1968. I, I, I'm struggling with my theology that didn't include all this stuff. I'd been reading the paperbacks that came off the press. I'd be listening to ta- tapes in those days, not CDs, tapes in those days. And there were those who were older and I perceived much, much wiser than me who came alongside me and said, Jim, don't get involved in this stuff. You see, there was a movement of the Spirit of God across the United Kingdom back in the 60s. And they said to me, this will spoil your ministry. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't want my ministry to be spoiled. I'm, I'm struggling with all of that, the hopes and the fears the doubts and the certainties, the longings and the forebodings, all there going on, churning deep within me. And so began a journey that has continued to this day. And I put down in your notes something that I passionately believe. Oh, folks, would you, would you grip this this morning? The Holy Spirit has come to fill us so that what Jesus made possible on the cross, the Holy Spirit wants to make actual in our lives. He hasn't come so we jump up and down and sing charismatic songs. I have no difficulty with that. He has come to credit us with the risen life of the Lord Jesus. I hope it's all right to do this. I borrowed a glove. You see, this glove looks like a hand. It has a palm, it has four fingers, it has a thumb, it has a back, it has a wrist. It looks very much like a, like a hand. But it can do nothing. Until I take my hand and I insert it into it. Still a glove. Still looks like a glove. Still is a glove. But this glove can do almost everything that I can do. I wanted to shake hands with you earlier because we're in the same bracket. (laughs) And I am amazed. I have no desire to skydive. (laughs) But you see, I can say to my hand, shake hands, and it does. I can say to my hand, would you you lift this, this pig? It's quite heavy. And it does it. I don't want to sound simplistic, but I do want to sound real. I can say to this hand, would you drive my car? This, this glove can drive my car. So almost everything that I can do, this glove can now do, because my life has been inserted into it. And that is good biblical New Testament doctrinal reality. Because that's why the Spirit has come, to credit us with the risen life of the Lord Jesus. 
How, how would they know? I mean, the question needs to be asked. How would they know people? What, what are the evidences of a spirit-filled life? Well, I think best on a piece of paper. And so I wrote down in my paper for, for this study this morning. Somebody who has a new sense of God. Somebody who is aware of the dynamic reality of God's power. Somebody who has come to terms with the immediacy of God's kingdom. Somebody who has a fresh experience of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Someone who has an awareness of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Somebody who's aware of an upsurge of worship and praise that comes almost like a fountain out of his heart. Somebody who has a, a new sense of unity with brothers and sisters in Christ where there may be disagreements, but there is a unity that's beyond my reason and my feelings. It's a spiritual thing that joins my heart, and so my heart is as your heart. There'll be an increasing desire to be a witness. And the final thing I put down, there'll be a willing submission to godly biblical leadership. These are the things that the Bible teaches. And that's what they're looking for as they go about their business. The twelve gathered all the disciples together. And they said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Holy Spirit. Don't, don't you want this stuff? Secondly, they are to be filled with wisdom, who are known to be full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. And uh, it was like the breaking of the dawn in my own understanding when I discovered that biblical wisdom has nothing whatsoever to do with university degrees. Now you'll understand I'm very much for good education. There's nothing to do with diplomas. I discovered that biblical wisdom is the ability to see things from God's point of view. That's what biblical wisdom is. The ability to see things from God's point of view. So what they're looking for here are those who are filled with the Spirit so that they are obviously living the Jesus life. And secondly, they are filled with wisdom. They have that supernatural ability, which is our inheritance. It's part of our spiritual inheritance in Jesus that we can begin to see things from God's point of view. How does, how does God see this situation? See, sometimes we never ask that question. We come with our own ideas. We come with our own experience. And we sometimes come with our own prejudices. We lay them all on the table. But when the people of God come together, it seems to me, brothers and sisters, you're having a church meeting, I believe, tomorrow night. I heard that this morning. Uh, 
historically and traditionally, the church meeting is the gathering of the people of God who are determined to see things from God's point of view. So we lay aside our ideas and our desires and even our prejudices. And we receive the heart of God, how God feels about it. What is God's agenda for, the ch- for this church? And that's why I put down on your notes five questions. I'm running around the United Kingdom these days asking these questions. When did God last speak to you? Come on, guys. We have a speaking God, haven't we? We have a God who not only has ears to listen, he has lips to speak. So it seems to me that I have a right to ask this question. When last did God speak to you? This morning? Last night? Last Wednesday? Last weekend? When? When last did God speak? Second question. What did God say to you? What did, he, what did he say to you when last he spoke to you? You see, my understanding, and frankly my experience, is that when God speaks, it's very simple. It's not complicated. In fact, when it's complicated and confusing, confusing there's, there's an amber light goes on in my head, and I'm thinking, is that God? And that sometimes turns to a red light. Because God is my Father. And I have fathered four children. And I've watched these children grow up. Here's one of my lads who's two. And I say to him, son, do you understand what I'm saying to you? Yes, Dad, he says. And then he becomes 12. And I say to him, son... Do you understand what I'm saying to you? Yes, Dad, he says to me. You see, as a dad, I want him to know what I want him to know. Then he becomes 22, and I say to him, Son, do, see, I'm still Dad in this outfit. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes, Dad. Maybe not so quickly when he's 22. But I speak to a 22-year-old differently from I speak to a 2-year-old But always as a dad, my concern is that my boy understands what's in my heart. And I take my fatherhood from God's fatherhood. So when God speaks to me, he speaks very simply. It's not convoluted. It's not confusing. There's a a simplicity and a straightforward. He speaks to me according to where I am in my journey. So what did God say to you when last he spoke to you? Third question. Very important. How did God speak to you? I don't want to embarrass him. I don't want to be condescending towards you, Rob. Did God speak to you through Rob's testimony this morning? Spoke to me. God often speaks through through his word. In fact, he never speaks contrary to his word, ever. Or listening to a CD, or reading a book, or watching a DVD, or being in a conversation with brothers and sisters, 
of being out there in the magnificence of God's creation. And God speaks. Sometimes God speaks in a prophetic word. Sometimes through a vision or a picture that he puts. Oh, there isn't time this morning to develop this. That's the third question. The fourth question, here's the big question. How do you know it's God who's speaking to you? That's a big one. What are the checks and balances? Come on, guys. This, this passage is strategic. This, this teaching is quite fundamental stuff. How do you know it's God? What are the checks and balances? Have you worked these out as an individual, as a church? And the fifth question, what have you done with what God said when last God spoke to you? See, God doesn't speak to me to see if I like it. God doesn't speak to me so that I can discuss it. God doesn't speak to me so that I can argue about it. God speaks to me so I'd be obedient because I'm his boy, because we're his people. So what God is looking for in church members are those who are filled with the Spirit daily. Daily. Those who are filled with wisdom, the ability to see things from God's point of view. I tell you, brothers and sisters, that totally transforms church meetings. Thirdly, full of faith, That's what it says. And I put down five definitions and I'm running out of time. But you have this stuff to take home with you. Faith enables us to grasp the invisible but real spiritual realm. You see, we have five senses, haven't we? Hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, and touching. These are the five senses we have. But as Christians, we have a sixth sense. It's called faith. So that I can see the invisible as if it were visible. Isn't that what the Bible is? It's it's Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith enables me to touch the invisible as if it were visible, the intangible as if it were tangible, the eternal as if it were... It were historical. Isn't it exciting? This is what it means to be a Christian. We have a sixth sense. And it's called faith. And there are six other things that I put down here. Faith is the open hand which receives what God wants to give us in his grace. Not because we deserve it, but because he's gracious towards us. Faith is neither encouraged nor discouraged by circumstances. Wow! I don't know where you've come from this week. I don't know what's on. I don't know what you went to bed with last night in your thinking. Faith is neither encouraged nor discouraged by circumstances. Look at it, folks. Number four: faith is confidence in a God who is utterly reliable and entirely trustworthy, even when you're going down the M5 with a tank full of petrol that won't get you home. God hasn't fallen off his throne. 
God is reigning. Oh, you see, theology without experience is dead. We got the theology, but what about the experience? Faith is willing to accept what it cannot understand. I've gone through the past 11 months, and thank you for praying for our family. But I've gone through the past 11 months confronting new situations. I don't understand. What's happening here? Faith is willing to accept what it cannot understand. And faith's chief occupation is obtaining the promises of God. I'm going to ask you that you would reflect on these seven things because it's six minutes to twelve and I'm told by my son that I should be finished by that the service be finished by 12 o'clock I'm trying <laughs> so what God is looking for church members who are filled with the spirit church members who are filled with wisdom church members who are filled with faith and church members who are filled with grace. The loveliest word in all the New Testament. Oh, guys. The word is charis. You know that. C-H-A-R-I-S. Every letter that Paul, begin, that Paul writes, uh, that's in the New Testament from Paul's hand, begins and ends with grace. For him, that's the substance of what it means to be a Christian experiencing and enjoying the sheer undeserved generosity and favor of God. So that in actual fact, it's not really ultimately a question of sitting. When, when you become aware of this, the, it seems to me that the only body language is on your knees with gratitude. Oh, God sheer undeserved generosity and favor has been lavished extravagantly on me and I'm the recipient of it. That takes us into the last thing on your notes. Because actually as these guys are brought forth and you've read the passage, I've read it too, this proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit also. These other men that are mentioned there, they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And then there's that so word. Wow. So. The word of God spread. No wonder. Here is a church that is vibrant with the reality of God's goodness and God's grace. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This is the last Sunday in September.
This is the last Sunday in September 2013. There will never be a Sunday like this again. This is it. When we get to the evening or the midnight of this Sunday, it's over forever. But you came here this morning not to listen to Rob, not to listen to me. You came here to meet God. It's the reason, the only reason ultimately that I go to church. Well, there's probably another reason. I'm commanded to do so, but that's another matter. But we came here to encounter God today. I believe God has spoken to us. The big issue, not only for you, but also for me, is am I listening? Will I make my response? Let's just be quiet for a moment. Rob, the time has almost gone. I'm sorry. But uh, let's just be quiet. Let, let's allow the word of God to settle in our hearts. Maybe you're feeling dry, empty, tired. Oh, guys, there's nothing more exhausting than trying to do God's work in your own strength. I know that. Would you ask Jesus to fill you afresh with the Spirit? Would you? Could you ask him to change your mindset? That your focus would not be on what you want, but on what he wants. Would you ask him to pour faith into your life? and make you aware of his grace.